0: So here's a confession. I probably went paperless with my utility just to avoid being confused by all the fees. Sometimes they're called adjustments and surcharges that I couldn't just figure out. And you know what? I'm not alone. Yes, I admit to having a deep-seated fear of my monthly electricity bill. I'm a good company. Welcome to Power Plays. I'm Terry Vishwanath, your host and lead economist for Power, Energy, and Water at CoBank. I'm joined with my co-host and CoBank Managing Director, Tamara Reynolds. Hey, Tamara.
1: Hello there. One of our featured guests on today's program, respected author and renowned energy economist, Dr. Ahmad Farouki, also admits that his monthly 15-page California utility bill is less than straightforward, making understanding and controlling his home electricity expenses difficult. And let's be clear... He is the foremost expert on this subject. If he finds it challenging, is there any hope for the typical consumer?
0: For the rest of us, right? Yeah, considering that we tease Ahmad about being the godfather of rate design, I think this is telling, underscoring the need for our electric co-ops to balance the need to bill consumers equitably and fairly, but also ensuring that their members have clear visibility and understanding of those charges, right?
1: Agreed. As our electricity supply becomes more variable, Mode flexibility needs to become more agile by responding to price signals. And if those price signals are buried deep on page 14 of the bill, well, that's just not going to happen.
0: Yeah, giving us a terrific tour of the current rate environment is Dr. Ahmad Farouki and Allison Hamilton, Director of Rates and Market Design at NRECA. We follow up that conversation with two very different but fascinating rate journeys with Mark Johnson, the general manager of Flathead Electric Cooperative out of Kalispell, Montana, and Ed Van Hoos. He's the president of Federated Energy Services Co-op in Ohio.
1: We jump into this podcast by asking Ahmad, why are electric rates quickly evolving? And here's his response.
2: The smart meter rollout is now reaching almost 100 million customers in the U.S., out of a total of roughly 140 million customers. So smart meters are now very widely deployed, regardless of whether it's a co-op or a municipal or an IOU. However, what is not yet universally deployed is time-of-use rates. Use rates right now only allow 10% of the customers to be on them. But let me rephrase it. Customers have a choice to pick time of use or not to pick time of use in most parts of the country. And only one out of 10 have picked them because customers have the fear of the unknown. They don't want the price varying by time of use. They think they will be armed with a time of use rate. So enrollment in smart meters is way higher than enrollment in a time of use rate. And it doesn't matter whether it's a co-op or a muni or an IOU, that's generally the challenge. Now, co-ops are ahead in one respect though, most customers have a higher fixed charge to recover monthly costs than the IOUs, number one. Number two, many of the co-ops have demand charges, whereas very few IOUs have demand charges.
3: I think in terms of uh, the evolution of rates there's a lot of similarities between co-ops and other types of utilities i think they face some different challenges than than other larger utilities for instance they have less consumers per mile um, so there's uh, less density Um, they also have a different capital structure so they um, operate at cost and um, if they have excess margins they return that to their members And so they have different metrics when it comes to rates, mostly based on solvency um, and debt covenants. And then they also serve um, 92 percent of the persistent poverty communities in counties in the U.S. So that's another challenge that that they have when they think about their rates.
0: Amanji, as we think about really the cost now, it's shifted, right? We've got variable zero cost resources that are coming onto the grid and we have 70% of the grid that is aging so we've had some changes in terms of cost as we think about the rate design evolution how does that influence where we're headed
2: well it'll it'll continue to evolve uh, generation costs over the longer term are likely to go down because you'll see more and more renewable resources coming on like wind and solar that have much lower generation costs but transmission costs might go up because some of those resources might be located quite far away. With so the mix of generation transmission and distribution is going to evolve with time. It will vary by utility as well. The so some are closer to those renewable resources and some are not. Some are more rural uh, and have really far flung networks, but those utilities transmission costs are going to be higher. But ultimately in any cost of service study, you have to boil it down to Does the cost vary by time of day or does it not vary by time of day? And then you have to figure out whether it's worthwhile to create a time of use rate that will incentivize customers to shift their loads. If your costs do not vary by time of use, why would you bother customers to move things around? But if there is a huge variation, your load curve is very peaky in the hot summer afternoons, then it makes sense to do time of use and if then you have 10% of the hours of the year with really extreme weather conditions, then you need dynamic pricing. So, all of these require, as you have correctly indicated, a cost of service study. And, you know, most utilities have not been doing those studies for years. They're using studies that were done five, 10 years ago. They need to start doing them more frequently because the cost structure is changing fast.
1: Yeah, that's a great point, Ahmad. Um, Allison, from your perspective, and particularly with the co-ops, um, you know, I've seen sort of a transition myself over the last uh, 15 years working with them and the way that they look at rates. And we're starting to see time of use really creep in, um, particularly for those utilities that are trying to figure out how to accommodate electric vehicles. What do you have to say about that
3: well, uh, I think we've seen different approaches to electric vehicles and as Ahmad mentioned, it boils down to, you know, what's your cost structure. Um, we've seen some co-ops that are looking at time of use rates. For instance, Cobb EMC outside of Atlanta, they have more of a suburban population and they have a night flex rate that has an overnight you know low time of use rate. Then the 1st, 400 kilowatt hours are free for the month. And then we have other co-ops like Roanoke in Virginia that implemented a subscription rate, because what happened was they talked to their consultant and they said, we want to, you know, encourage managed charging EV charging overnight um, and EV adoption. We're looking at time of use rate, but then the consultant came in and said, but that doesn't really work with your cost structure. So let's look at these numbers again. And what they landed on was a subscription rate.
2: The thing that is lacking today, which we need to do more of. Besides, of course, doing the cost of service studies more frequently is customer outreach. We need to understand whether the customers will even find these new rates acceptable or not. I mean, there are more and more customers who are saying, I want simplicity. I don't want complications. I just want to lower my bill. And yes, I do want to pay the amount that I'm due, but don't make me solve mathematical equations to figure out my bill. Um, we have to simplify the bill we have to really talk to customers to figure out what works for them and what doesn't work for them we just can't push our ideas onto them and expect them to fall in line
3: Cooperatives in general are very good at communicating with their members. They have smaller communities. They're involved in the communities. And 1 of the things that they've told me in the past is, you know, they had these focus groups. They had uh, community meetings to talk about a new rate and what they, you know, their members would say, well, we don't understand and we're angry about it. And they would say, look at the numbers. We're going to show you the numbers. And now you understand why this is why we're changing the rate to say a residential demand charge and really, you know, if they communicated that very eloquently to their members, they understood it. And they said, okay, we're on on board with this.
0: Really appreciate having you both on the program today. Thank you so much.
3: Terry.
1: I want to echo a couple of really important points made in our discussion with Ahmad and Allison, and that is the need for more frequent cost assessments and customer outreach.
0: I was struck by the fact that only about 10% of electricity users are on a time of use program. And even though we have had a pretty significant penetration of smart meters, well, customers are really not getting the benefit of that technology because they simply don't understand or perhaps are suspicious of this rate design.
1: Which brings us to the discussion with our co-op managers. You know, I specifically asked both Mark and Ed to give us a quick understanding of the communities they serve. We know that cost of service is tailor-made to the unique matchup of supply and demand for any given system. It depends on the generation resource mix, but also delivery, system density, and individual load profiles of the members. Here's
0: our conversation with Mark Johnson from Flathead Electric.
4: Our co-op is growing significantly. We just uh, went through 72,000 meters. Uh, When I started at the co-op 23 years ago, we had about 47,000 meters. So We're growing at a pace of about 2,000 meters a year. Um, We've got about 56,000 members uh, in our utility, and we serve um, five counties in northwest Montana and also a small area in southeast Montana um, down in the Cook City Elk Basin area, which is a lot of people don't realize. But when we acquired Pacific Corps Service Territory in Montana, we also acquired Uh, that area, and we've served it ever since. So it's uh, been an interesting ride in my 23 years, a lot of changes over those years.
0: And let's talk a little bit about those changes, I guess, with regard to Flathead's evolution of rates. So where did Flathead start, and where are you today in terms of rate design for your members?
4: When I started, we had just acquired Pacific Corps, and so we were working through what rate design made sense when you try to incorporate, you know, two different rate designs. Pacific course theory obviously is an investor owned utility is a low basic charge, high energy charge on the residential side. Um, you know, we at, at Flathead had a high basic charge and a lower energy charge. And, and so we've transitioned and integrated all of our residential and, you know, our uh, industrial and commercial rates all together obviously now, but uh, we've been through a number of gyrations in that time. Just to kind of give you a quick rundown, um, on the residential side, we have a basic charge, a three-tiered energy charge. Um, It's an inclining block, three-tiered energy charge, and then a demand rate. And then on our commercial and industrial rates, depending on the size of it, we have really a total of eight eight rate classes. Our most recent change was adding demand to our residential rate. And then a few years ago, we added time of use energy to our extra large general service, our industrial and our irrigation rate.
0: Yeah. And I think the nuance being is that you had, a, a, through that acquisition, you know, I you had a whole different framework to work with. So attempting to get to one standard uh, so that it, it looked like, you know, one standard rate
4: Yeah, it's not been easy. I can tell you that. We've, um, especially on the residential side, you know, when we had the difference between the basic charges of, at that time, it was $5 and $16. Um, We moved everybody to $21 and lost six of nine board members and a general manager. Um, So, you know, rates, if you don't think they have an impact on the leadership at the co-op, think again, because we've seen what can happen. Um, if you don't design it appropriately.
1: Yeah, you have to walk a fine line sometimes. Um, you know, I, I think just going back to the two most recent sort of adjustments, let's talk about those, um, the time of use for, for those two classes of CNI, and and then the uh, sort of time of day rate or the demand rate you talked about for residential.
4: What triggered most of the decisions was the change in the way the Bonneville Power Administration billed us. Um, when we looked at how Bonneville changes, has changed its, you know, billing practices on the wholesale side, you know, we knew that we had to make some changes. And the first thing we did was went to our industrial and extra large general service customers and said, you know, we're, we're having this impact on a wholesale basis. And we're looking at a couple of rate designs, you know, and we had gone and talked to multiple utilities around the country on how to deal with time of use on the, on the commercial and primarily on the industrial side. And went to them and said this is what we're planning on doing so we held some meetings with our industrial and extra large general service customers talked about the benefits for them of time of use where you know give giving them more control over you know their rates and their usage and and honestly in a lot of industrial and extra large general service capacities they don't have control over when they know when they consume energy but if they do it gave them the opportunity to control their rate you know your commercial members are you know they're in tune to what's going on financially they understand the data they're easier to talk to doing your best to communicate with your residential members is a tough task but you know we felt like this rate design made a lot of sense for a couple of reasons the first was the rate design itself um on the time of day demand, basically it only applies Monday through Friday, seven to 10 AM in the morning and five to 8 PM in the evening, no weekends, no federal holidays. So by not using, you know, a non-coincidental demand, uh, on our residential members, it allowed them control. You know, they could do the same thing as our commercial industrial customers could do, which is shift usage off those peak period times. Um, and give them more control than they'd have previously. One of the limiting factors on our residential side is we adopted um, AMI uh, two-way communicating meters back in the early 2000s. So we were out in front of that particular um, change that has obviously been now much more popular in our industry. And the meters that we had at that time when we put them in didn't allow for a lot of data uh, you know, storage within the meter itself. So, you know, the fact that we put out over 60,000 meters, we weren't going to change meter types or meter structures anytime soon because we had limitations and it was just too expensive to redo all of that. So we used a system through meter data management and NISC, which allowed us to design this custom time of day demand program for our residential members. And, and so far, you know, initially, Um, You know, people were kind of skeptical of it. And I, I can't honestly say that residential members will ever understand what demand is. I mean, we've tried every possible way to explain demand. And yet, you know, we've had it in place now five years. And even at our last annual meeting, I was still getting questions about what is demand. I don't understand it. This, we just announced our fourth straight year of no rate increases, but we do every year have a rate design change on our residential where we're raising the demand rate and lowering the the energy rates um, at the same dollar amount. So theoretically, if you consumed electricity from one year to the other, you would have virtually no impact in your overall rates because we're raising demand and lowering energy. Our industrial members have been really happy um, and, and extra large general service members have been really happy with the time of use design because it does give them some flexibility that they didn't have. And I would say our residential members are, you know, I don't know if they're satisfied. I don't know that you could say that because they don't understand demand. But I, I think they understand why we're trying to do it if they, you know, if they've paid attention and looked at what we've provided them from an educational perspective.
1: Are there any lessons learned that you'd like to share with other co-op managements and boards as they start to look at maybe evolving their rate structure or trying to do something similar to what you guys have done? And, and any, any pro tips for those out there that, that want to make the change and don't know how to, where to start or how to get there?
4: I would definitely recommend talking to other utilities. There's enough demand implementers around and time of use rate implementers out there that you know you don't need to go it alone. The other piece that I think is super important is communication and education. I mean without that you know you're bound for failure or at least some level of failure.
0: Mark I think that's that's just great advice and I think this world is getting more complex. Our bills can be more complex to best reflect this changing, you know, the changing dynamic you spoke to. So I, I appreciate those insights. Really enjoyed your comments today and having you on the program. Thank you so much.
4: Yeah, thanks to you guys for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity.
0: Tamara, it was fascinating to hear the generalized differences between investor-owned utility rates and co-ops.
1: The fact that IOUs generally have a low base charge, but high energy charge is usually the opposite for co-ops. The challenge of the IOU acquisition by Flathead was to merge these two very different rate designs and socialize the framework with a broader membership.
0: Ed Van Hoos from Federated is the GM for two electric distribution cooperatives that have very different but distinct membership composition or load density. The challenge for Ed was to design an equitable program based on time of use rates. The Federated program has been established for about seven or eight years now, and we get to hear about Ed's experience with member outreach. Here's that discussion.
1: So, Ed, we're really excited to talk to you today about um, a number of things focused on rate designs and what you are doing at your cooperatives. But first, I wanted you to give us a background and overview of of who your co-ops are and what what um what kind of service territory, all the you know, sort of background details that that folks like to know about when they talk about um, their co-ops to other people.
5: Sure. Well, Just to start with, I'm the president of Federated Energy Services Cooperative, which we call FESCO. Um, That makes me the general manager for two electric distribution cooperatives, North Central Electric Cooperative and Lorraine Medina Rural Electric Cooperative. It's a federated agreement, which is kind of unique among the electric cooperative uh, utilities. We share a lot of different services, um, management being one of them, but pretty much any office type function is shared and therefore has a a real cost benefit to our members. North Central is about 9,600 to 10,000 meters, so it's relatively small cooperative, and uh, Lorraine Medina runs anywhere from 16,000 up to to 20,000 in that general vicinity. Uh, We are located in northeastern Ohio, um, and I would say north central, more central, obviously from the name there. Uh, We have primarily residential, like most rural co-ops do, but we do have quite a bit of commercial load as well and industrial load. Um, Our demographic is very widely varied. One of the real interesting things about the Federation, though, is our density. So uh, like most rural co-ops, our density is much lower than what you would get in the cities, obviously. But North Central in Ohio is the lowest density co-op in the state. And Lorraine Medina is the highest density co-op in the state. And yet we manage both. So provides some unique challenges that you wouldn't necessarily get. Some of our um, more notable loads would be at North Central, we have a, a mining operation, a steel operation. We have an industrial load that does all of the interior uh, injection molding for the new Ford Bronco, so that's kind of cool that that's built here on our lines. And then at LMRE, what's what's really interesting, even though we're in northeastern Ohio where it gets pretty cold, we have the largest greenhouse in North America.
0: Yeah, you've got a really varied landscape for your for your members. Let's talk a little bit about your co-op's evolution of rates over the past couple of decades for these members.
5: Sure. Um, so like most co-ops back in the day when we were founded, there was a self-read. Um, metering uh, was pretty basic and there were even cards that were mailed in. Um, I think there's actually still a few in the country that are still even at that point. Um, but then after that, you you move and, and we move to a um, AMR, which is you know just having the meters be read automatically and some mechanical meters. Um, and then eventually to AMI, which is where we're at right now. When we install AMI metering and the communication infrastructure that comes along with that, it enabled us to then start taking a look at some more advanced rate structures, and in particular for us, the time of use use rate structure. So that's what we've done, and um, it's universally applied, so that's kind of unique too. We don't have a different type of rate structure for each individual class. Now that doesn't mean the rates aren't different per class because they obviously are because there's different characteristics of each class and so you you have some some differences there but we do have time of use rates for everyone.
0: And just so we understand, uh, when was the time that you converted to that time of use you know roughly when when did that take place?
5: It's been 7-8 to eight years back now so it's been in place for quite a while. I know there are co-ops who are looking at this right now. Um, I would encourage them to you know really look at doing it. I I would say on the residential side over the last seven, eight years, we probably haven't seen a huge shift in behavior. There are some people who take it very seriously, but on the commercial and industrial side, it does, it does have a pretty big impact on them and also enables you to have a conversation with them about their rate structures and what they can do kind of empowers them, right? So they, they have the ability to make some decisions on their own to adjust their business practices to be able to shave off some of their electric bill. And when you have an electric bill that can total, sometimes in the millions of dollars on the commercial on an annual basis, it can have a real impact on their bottom line.
1: So Ed, what factors were important for your co-op to evaluate when designing that type of rate structure for the C&I customers?
5: Typically when you're looking at rate structures, um, there's a lot of factors that go into it, right? Rate setting is more of an art than a science. You always have some, some initial math that goes into it. And, and, but what you're always trying to do and what we were always trying to do is to find ways to reduce the cross-subsidization between the different rate classes so that a cost driver is actually the cost payer. At the local level, by going to time of use rates, we can take the, the energy usage and make it more of a true pass-through And then we can set our fixed costs to be what it really should be at the distribution level to cover the costs locally. And so those are really most of the factors that we look at. Now, we do an annual um, adjustment to these rates. So we look annually at what has occurred after the past 12 months to see what is going on with each individual load, and particularly those large consumers that may be their own rate class. We will take a look at all of those usages, make sure that nothing has changed over the past 12 months, and adjust accordingly for what has happened to their usage in the the past year.
0: So let's talk a little bit more about the communication. So without a pilot program, we've got to be transparent. And so what does that communication cycle look like?
5: So leading up to the time of use rate changes, there was a massive communication effort to make sure people, everybody on the lines understood what was about to happen to their bills. Now that was a multitude of different types of channels. We use NISC, so we have Smart Hub. There were notifications that went out in that. We have our magazine, like most do, so there was a lot of communication that go out went out on that. Social media um, wasn't as prevalent at the time, Um, but it was still used for this types of purposes. There were even ads put in the newspaper and there were radio advertisements. So after this was all adopted, the communication continued and it still does to this day. At least quarterly, we're putting something out there about the time of use rates and what people can expect and trying to encourage people to take advantage of them. Because honestly, it's a win for them as well. If they will just do a minor shift in their behavior, they can see a cost reduction on their bill.
1: Yeah, that's, that's really interesting, Ed. Um, can you kind of explain more about how you got to what that right number is and how you're looking at that as, as sort of co-ops and utilities in general go into this next building phase for infrastructure?
5: It's pretty typical part of rate development that you're continually always looking at the fixed charge component. Um, over time, The strategy kind of universally has been to move that fixed charge component to cover what the local distribution costs actually are. Now, of course, those numbers are inevitably going to be higher than what people have normally seen because traditionally, um, co-ops have put a lot of those fixed components into the variable costs in the kilowatt hour charge. And that isn't necessarily proper to do so, because then you're cost shifting from one member to another, and the different member rate classes are not actually paying their fair share at the local cost.
1: Ed, we really appreciate what you pulled together for us today. Great information about what you guys are doing, and it sounds like you're really thoughtful and and, um, uh, doing the right things for your members. So thanks for sharing
5: today. Great. It's good to talk to you guys.
1: Ed points out that the main goal in rate design is to find ways to reduce the cross-subsidization between the different rate classes. In essence, making sure that the cost driver is actually the cost payer, but to do so in a very transparent manner so that members understand their bill and how they can save money.
0: The fact is, consumer electricity bills are becoming increasingly complex as major cost-of-service components, that is generation, transmission, and distribution, are replaced, reinforced, and possibly re-envisioned. Making sure that cooperatives stay ahead of the cost curve and bringing their membership along is an absolute imperative.
1: Yes, I agree. Well, that wraps up our program. Tune in next month for our back to school edition, where we get on the electric school bus, speaking with an electric bus manufacturer, the Beneficial Electrification League, and of course, an electric co-op that's making a difference in their community. Join us then.